Rev said something that's kind of stuck with me. I actually even wrote it in my notes after he said it. Is God your everything? If God is your everything, when does that start and begin? When does that begin and end? Is he your everything at all times? Or only when things are great? Or only when things are bad? Is he, is he your everything in the midst of suffering? What does suffering do to you and the people around you? Let's get to, let's get to the word. We uh, obviously are here on Palm Sunday. The uh, scripture for today is Matthew chapter 21. It says, when they approached Jerusalem, came to, is the peace island? Bethage? Bethage. At the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples telling them, go into the village ahead of you. And once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt, untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place. So that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, see, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt. Then they laid their clothes on them and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. Then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. But when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar saying, who is this? There's a couple of words that um, I, I want to like really say over and over again. And they kind of go to they go together in the sense of how I'm speaking them, but they're actually really antonyms if you really think about it. The first two is fear and faith. The second two is expectation and disappointment. So fear and faith, expectation and disappointment. Has anybody here ever seen the movie Superbad? So there's a character in Superbad. His name is McLovin. His real name is Fogel. And... Um, I know you're thinking to yourself, how did this go from Hosanna to Fogel? However, Fogel was a character in the movie Superbad, and he was kind of a weird dude. And the movie kind of goes back and forth between who he sees himself being and who he is. So at the beginning of the movie, when he's first introduced, um, there's this odd scene where there's this girl walking down the hallway, and he's just like watching her walk, moving to her pace. And then she turns around, and he's like, it's 1030. She's like, what? And he laughs and takes off running because he really didn't feel comfortable. He, he wasn't one of those dudes that was a ladies man. He, he kind of struggled with who he was. However, like halfway through the movie, he gets this fake ID. And when he gets this fake ID, the name on it is McLovin. So the two characters that are in the movie with him, one of them specifically, like he's only in relationship with Fogel when it's beneficial for himself. At the beginning of the movie, he's like, no, we shouldn't tell Fogel about this party. We shouldn't tell him anything about it. But then once he finds out that he's got the fake ID, he was like, man, we got to tell Fogel about the party so we can use him. Like the, 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 the relationship that the character has with McLovin 
it kind of reminds me of the relationship that we might have with God, where we're only really in relationship with him when it's beneficial to us. However, McLovin, when he changes his ID, he actually turns into this completely different character. Like he, 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 he's cool with talking to the girl. At one point in time, he's shooting a gun at a stop sign. He, he arrests a homeless dude at a, uh, at a bar. He catches a, 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 a cop car on fire. Like when he changes the ID, when he changes his expectation of who he is, he really changes into this completely different person. So again, going back to what the words were, how has fear and faith, how has expectation and disappointment worked in your life? I would go as far to say that fear is when faith turns on itself is how I heard it. Fear is when your faith has turned on itself. And normally when your faith turns, it's because you have an expectation that you have set and that expectation was wrong and it's turned into disappointment. Suffering changes what you expect from someone. The crowd that was waiting on Jesus was a crowd that was suffering. Before I get started, I just want to kind of like characterize what this crowd was going through. We're talking about a group of people who like their culture had been taken from them. They're, 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 they were basically slaves. The men weren't able to be men in their households. They weren't able to freely be fathers. They weren't able to freely be husbands. The women weren't able to freely be wives. They weren't able to go forth and worship the way that they wanted to. They weren't able to, to go to and fro. They couldn't spend money the way that they wanted to. They were overtaxed. They were overworked. They were treated in, a, in, 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 a, in an unright way. They were suffering. And because of the way that they were suffering, they had an expectation of who God would be in their lives. But when that expectation wasn't met, what we see is we see a relationship that goes from Hosanna, Hosanna to crucify him, crucify him. The same group of people that we read about a week later would not be screaming Hosanna. They would be screaming crucify him. Hosanna in the original context actually just means save us. They were hoping for a Messiah that would be a savior, the son of David, the son of the Lord, that would come and get them out of this situation. So when they were laying out the tree branches and they were, they were celebrating, they were excited. They were excited because they thought all of my suffering is about to end. All of that fear that I have is about to turn back to the faith that I know God has for me. And this dude is about to pull out a slingshot, an AR. Like he's about to pull out something. He's going to turn into this warrior king, and he's going to take us from slavery to freedom. He's going to take us from suffering to glory. But my question is, why can't suffering and glory be together? How have we been taught about suffering? Have we been taught that suffering is something that we should not go through? How many times do we hear about the suffering Jesus? How many times do we accept that? When fear is present, it brings forth a false expectation, and false expectations control our disappointment. God wants us to know who he is, what to expect from him, 
why we have faith in him, what we have faith in him for, because of who he is, so that we can share in his glory. What do you expect from Jesus? When you think about the Jesus that reigns, like Peter thought about the Jesus that reigns, does it make you want to discredit the Jesus that suffers? When, 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 when Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? And Peter thought of like the grand uh, beauty that is Jesus. He was like, you are the son of God. You're the son. You are the Christ. You are the son of the Lord. And, and Jesus was like, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. You are absolutely right. And then Jesus starts to show him and show the disciples going forward about how he was going to suffer. But the more and more that he told them about how he was going to suffer, the more and more Peter was like, no, far be it from the truth. You're the Christ that reigns, not the Christ that suffers. And Jesus had to actually check him and say, like, Satan, get behind me. I believe that there is something that goes into our fear of suffering. That is going to alter how we praise God. It's going to alter how we go from Hosanna to crucify him. I'm going to break this down into three points, three points today. The first point is the grave. There's something amazing about the names that we have given Jesus, the names that we have given God. If you really think about it, over 90% of the names that we call him are names that we've given him because of our experience with him. The Jehovah Raphaes, the Jehovah Nisis, the, the God who sees me, the God who is my banner, the God who goes before me. These are all names that we have given God. These are expectations that we have set forth for who God is according to who he has been to us. I believe that there is a name that I've given God. And it is the God who rescues me from the grave. These people came to an expectation of who Christ was in the midst of slavery. Again, in the midst of their culture being snatched. Their, their, their life molded their expectation of Christ. And because of that, they went from Hosanna, Hosanna to crucify him, crucify him. I want to go to John 11. This is when Jesus was with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Those of you who know this story, you know, they come to Jesus. It's a little bit of time in between their journey from where Lazarus is to where Jesus is. And they tell him that they're the one that he loves, he, he's going through it. It's not looking good. He's not going to make it. And Jesus doesn't immediately leave. And there's some key details that I want to make sure we talk about when we talk about the grave. The first key, de key detail is the fact that even if Jesus would have left on time, he still would have got there two days after Lazarus was already dead. So he waits a little bit before he actually goes. And the key details that I, I want to talk about throughout the, throughout the day, I want, the, I want them to be something that helps you understand why Jesus does the, what, the things that he does and how it relates to your relationship with him. Now, in the Israelite culture, 
the way that they thought was the soul of a person actually stayed around for three days in hopes of resuscitation. And after the third day, the soul of that person or the spirit of that person would actually leave. So one of the reasons that I believe Jesus might have actually waited and showed up four days after Lazarus was already dead was so that when he actually raised Lazarus from the dead, there was no question of whether it was something that could have easily been done by anybody. He wanted it to be known that this was something that was of the Lord. And he says it. He says it in the scriptures. But there is a blessing that begins in the grave. We've already talked about the hesitation. But I want to talk about the situation. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, they wasn't broke. But they didn't have money either. And in this period of time, when someone died, they would be put into a grave, obviously. And to not be put in a grave in this culture was actually looked at as a bad thing. That's why you see all through the Old Testament, people talk about people's body just laying in the dirt, right? So what would happen is not what you see today when people have burial plots and it's just a person laying next to a person laying next to a person. What actually would happen back then was if you had a whole lot of money, you could buy a cave for just your family. But everybody in your family went inside that cave. If you didn't have a whole lot of money, then you just went into a grave with everybody else. I don't believe that Lazarus had the type of money that he had a cave that was just for him and his family. I believe he had the type of money that he would have been buried with a lot of dead people. He would have been in a situation to where his body was around a lot of people's bodies. So what the, what the Bible says is then Jesus deeply moved again. He came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. And he said, remove the stone. Jesus said, Martha's the dead man's sister told him, Lord, there is already a stench because he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God. So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you hear that you heard me. I know that you always hear me. But because of the crowd standing here, I said this so that you may believe you sent me. So that they may believe that you sent me. And after he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The first point I want to make within this point is. When God called you out of the grave, you weren't the only one in a grave, but you were the only one that came out. You were in a dead situation. And God did not want you to have the relationship of misunderstanding, of, of not having true expectation. He did not want you to have a relationship of fear, but he wanted you to have a relationship that is built in, in faith, that is built in proper expectation. And he called you out of a situation that a lot of people was going through. Not only was a lot of people going through it, but when he called you out of it and you came out of it, there were still people in it. How blessed are you to be the one person of many that God called out of a grave situation. Think of the grave situation that you were in. Think of the situation that you were in that leads, that leads to death. The situation that you were in that it, 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 it wraps around you so much that even in your grave, if you were alive, you would be dead. This is what I mean by that. When he called Lazarus out of the grave, the first thing that he said was, hurry, 
take those grave clothes off of him. If anybody knows anything about how they would wrap the body, the first thing that they would wrap and they would wrap it tightly was your mouth. They would wrap your face completely. So even when Lazarus came out of the grave, he wasn't in a situation to where he could walk yet. He wasn't in a situation not to where he can walk yet, but where he can walk healthy. So God doesn't even just stop at just calling you out of your grave, but when he calls you out of your grave, he puts you in a situation to where he immediately puts you in, in, in better health. He immediately puts you in a space to where you're able to breathe better than you were when you were in the, when you were in the grave. He said, take the grave clothes off of him. But the reason why he says that, because if he did not do that, he would have died even after he came out of the grave. Think about the Jairus's daughter. When he, when he woke Jairus's daughter up, immediately, what did he say? He said, feed that girl because a lot of times when you're in a dead situation you're not putting what is needed into your body for you to be able to be sustained after you gain relationship with Christ he wanted a new name to be given to him specifically for you the God who rescued me out of the grave My second point is the God who rescued you from your chains. When we go back to Matthew chapter 21, in the beginning, there was a scripture where he was talking about the donkey. It was a donkey and it was a colt. And he said to the disciples, go and get the donkey and the colt, they'll be tied up. There'll probably be a little resistance. Just tell them that it's for the Lord. For whatever reason, when I was reading this scripture, I immediately stopped thinking about the donkey and I started to think about myself. And I want you to kind of like visualize this with me, if you can. I want you to think about yourself, but I want you to think about where the Lord was. Um, I think a lot of times we believe that Jesus' suffering began on the cross or his suffering began in the Garden of Gethsemane. But in my opinion, I believe that Jesus' suffering began when he was baptized. Just imagine knowing that you're going to die. You not have any health ailments. There's nothing wrong with you, but you just know what God's will is for you. You know that you're going to not only suffer physically, but you're going to suffer mentally. And even more, you're going to suffer in relationships. The people that you love, the people that you connect with. Mary and Martha started to cry with Lazarus. And Jesus knew, I'm about to save this dude. But he began to weep. And I've preached the Lazarus sermon 38 times probably. But this, this morning when I was driving here and I was wondering, like, why was Jesus weeping when he knew that he was going to raise Lazarus? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And I started to think about the fact that he was watching people cry because of death. But he knew that this was going to be the miracle that led to his death. Just imagine watching someone cry for someone else, but you know they love you, so you know how much they're going to cry when you're gone. I believe that that's the reason why Jesus wept. Because he looked at Mary and Martha and he was like, I see how they cry for him. I imagine how they're going to be crying when they know that it's me. Even more so because I'm going to be crucified. 
But I believe that Jesus suffered. And I think he suffered greatly. And in the midst of him knowing, I am on my way to Jerusalem to be beaten, for my beard to be ripped out. The Bible says that he wasn't even like something that you would want to look at afterwards. The crown of thorns, the nails in his hands and his feet. In the midst of all of that, he said, hey, I want you to go get something that's tied down. Even though I'm suffering, even though I'm on my way to death, I want you to go get something that's tied down. I believe that there is some symbolism of that in you. In the midst of God's suffering, he was thinking about what you were going to be tied down to. How you were going to be tied down into something. And there's two things about the donkey and the cult that I think is a blessing in the details again. The first thing is the cult the cult is, um, it's a wild animal. If you look in Mark, it says that the cult had never been ridden before. When, when Jesus sat on it, that was the first time that anyone had sat on that cult. This wasn't a cult that was um, running around freely, just eating in the pasture. This wasn't a donkey that was readily trusted that was a community donkey like this was a cult and a donkey that no matter what time of the day that they were going to go get it they were tied down they were tied up to something what that means is neither one of these objects or animals rather were animals that the, the owner believed were worthy I believe that there's somebody here under the sound of my voice that you're connected to something, you're in chains to something, you're tied down to something, or you're tied to something, and you believe that God can't use you. You believe that because of what you're tied to, what you're tied down to, what you're connected to, what you're in chains to, that God is not capable of using you. You're too wild. You're too crazy. You have never been used before. Even your people that are connected to you, the people that are your owners, they don't even really trust you all like that. They don't even use you for what you believe you were created to be used for. But even in the midst of suffering, God said, I want you to go get that which is tied down because I need it. I want you to know that God needs you even though you're tied down. He needs you even though what you're enchained to and you're connected to is something that makes you look bad in the community, has made you not be used previously. He said, there's going to be opposition when you tell someone that you're going to get that for me. There's going to be other people that says, why are you grabbing this? I got a good donkey over here. If the Lord really needs it, I got a good cult over here. I got a good kid over here. I got a good parent or a good adult. I got a minister. I got a deacon over here that you can use. But God is like, no. I'm untying this one. You ever felt like God can't use you? Because of what you're connected to. My last point is the God who rescued me from me. When we set an expectation, I believe we, we put chains on the name of God. You ever been in a space where you're like, yeah, I just don't think I can do it. 
I believe that this is what God is going to do. So I'm not even going to pray about it. This is what I need God to do. So I'm going to pray about it, but I'm going to end the prayer with just an amen. What that looks like is, God, this is what I want you to do. God, this is what I need you to do. God, this is what I can't handle. So I need you to take it from me. Amen. I, I want to say that God rescued me from me when he prayed the prayer that he prayed in Gethsemane. I am the person that has always looked at God as like this genie in the bio, the uh, genie in the bottle. You know, you know, you grab your Bible, you rub the side, you hope that Jesus comes out. Looks like Will Smith and Aladdin. You ask him a couple things, he gives it to you. Now we're in good relationship. But when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he showed us the true understanding of fear and faith. It wasn't that he wasn't fearful of what he had to do. Make no mistake. Jesus was saying to God, I don't want to do this. I understand exactly what it is that you're asking me to do. I've been suffering. I've been in mental anguish. I've been thinking about this for so long that as I'm sitting here, I'm bleeding sweat. This is an actual like scientific uh condition that just comes from stress that is unimaginable that he was dealing with in this in this instance but he for me rescued me from me and continuing in the in the ignorance of that being my prayer God, this is just something I don't want to do. So if you could take away from me, like that would be really great because going through this type of suffering is not something that I believe that I have to go through in order to get to what it is that you're asking for me to do. But for Jesus instance, he was essentially talking about everything that we know he's about to go through for this next hours and days, the walking while he's bleeding, bleeding out. He, he's been he's been given the the, the, the the 39 lashes because 40 would have killed him. He's been beaten. He's been his his beard has been ripped out. His he 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 can hardly carry the cross so someone else has to carry it with them. He he he's watching his mother as she's just probably going through everything in the world that you can think of emotionally as he's just dying in front of her. He's watching his, his closest relatives or his closest friends run away, not knowing what they're going to do. And he's been put on a cross and they put nails in his hands and his feet and he can hardly breathe. He's got to use every ounce of energy just to lift up his body so that he can say a word. And he knows that this is what he's about to go through. And he's like, I don't want to do it. But trust me when I tell you that he was thinking of you when he said, but not my will be done. Your will be done. In order for Jesus to ride in on the donkey, somebody had to give up something that they paid for. I'll be out of your way in a second, but I want you to think about that and ask yourself, what is it that you're willing to give up for Jesus to be Hosanna? Someone would have had to raise that donkey, raise that colt, 
What is it that you've raised, that you've put money in, that you've put time in, that you've put effort in, that you have an expectation for? And then God comes through and says, but the Lord needs that. How willing have you been in your life to be able to give up to Jesus what he needs from you? God is not the God of confusion. And I want to set that as the expectation. And he wanted to know, he wanted you to know the names that you would have as an expectation from him, for him. So that your life would not be a life of disappointment because of expectations that you have set forth. Your own, on your own. He is not a God that he would leave you nor forsake you. He is not a God that would put you in a situation to where your suffering just ends in suffering. But he is a God that has created a relationship with you and has set an expectation of what to expect from him so that you recognize that even in your suffering, it is going to end in glory. They thought that Jesus was going to be a warrior king. They set the expectation of that when they were screaming out, save us, when they were screaming out, Hosanna. And the fact that he wasn't put them in a position to where they would rather take Barabbas than Jesus. They went from save us, Hosanna, to crucify him. We'd rather take a murderer. Their faith turned into fear. The expectation turned into disappointment. And their anger turned them into putting Jesus' name in chains. Last thing I want to let you guys know is there's glory in suffering. The hardest things that you're going to go through in your life. The Bible says that all things work together for the good of those who are called according to. He's shown us that he can get us out of the grave. He's shown us that he can get us from what we've been tied into. And he's shown us that his name is a name that rescues us from anything and everything. Though suffering is a part of the journey, he is the God who rescues us out of the suffering. 